This audio is a presentation of Westminster Orthodox Presbyterian Church in Hamill, South Dakota. For more information about our church, you can visit our website at hamillopc.com. That's H-A-M-I-L-L-O-P-C dot com. Our scripture reading tonight comes from John chapter 14. John 14, and we will be looking at the first 14 verses. Hear now the reading of God's holy word. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also, and where I go you know, and the way you know. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going, and how can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my father also. From now on, you know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the father and it is sufficient for us. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and yet you have not known me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the father. So how can you say, show us the father? Do you not believe that I am in the father and the father in me? The words that I speak to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does the works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father in me, or else believe for the sake of the works themselves. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also, and greater works than these he will do, because I go to my Father. Whatever you ask in my name, that I will do that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of our God stands forever. Let us pray. Father, as we come to your word this evening, I pray that you would write it on our hearts, that you would comfort us, and that you would assure us with the hope that this text gives us that your son Jesus has gone to prepare a place for us and that where he has gone, we will also someday be. And we pray this in his name. Amen. We've been working through this upper room discourse in the Gospel of John. We began it in chapter 13 and tonight we come to chapter 14. So before this, we saw Jesus' acts of foot washing for his disciples, and in that he modeled how his disciples were to love one another. They were to love one another self-sacrificially, not out of interest for themselves. But he also, in that foot washing, displayed and described the spiritual washing that his disciples have. They have justification. They have the forgiveness of sins. Though that did not apply to all of them, for Judas was also there. Later in chapter 13, Jesus addressed the matter of Judas, the betrayer. It had been revealed to John so that John might record how Jesus was sovereign even there, that he knew Judas 
was going to betray him and was in fact using it for his purposes. And we also saw that after Judas's departure and in light of the trouble to come, that Jesus gave his disciples a new commandment that was an old commandment. They were to love one another. And then finally, Jesus addressed the issue of Peter's denial. It was not the same as Judas's betrayal, which was a point of no return. Peter would sin, but he would sin as one in the faith, as one who would repent and be restored. Now, the thread holding all of those points in chapter 13 together was Jesus' imminent departure. In chapter 14, we learn more about that departure and what it means, what it's for, and what will come after. And so we'll look at this text tonight in three points as Jesus reveals three important truths in this upper room discourse here in chapter 14. First, Jesus reveals his going in verse 1 through 6. Jesus is leaving, but he is leaving with purpose. He is leaving because he has something to do that is for the benefit of his people. And second, Jesus reveals God in verses 7 through 11. Though he has trod this ground many times before in John, there remains confusion among the disciples as to how Jesus relates to the Father. And third, Jesus reveals gifts. There are benefits, there are assurances that Jesus reveals to his disciples in verses 12 through 14. So again, tonight we have Jesus revealing his going, revealing God, and revealing gifts. These are our points for tonight. First, we see Jesus reveal his going in verses 1 through 6. Now, after the many difficult things that Jesus has just spoken about, in the previous chapter, that would give his disciples reasons to be troubled. He then tells them in the opening of chapter 14 to not let their hearts be troubled. This comes in an immediate follow-up to the announcement of Peter's coming denial. Now, it is no accident that Jesus reveals the truth of eternal hope immediately after that. Peter will still share in that eternal hope even though he is about to deny Christ in the most critical of times. This is true not just of Peter, but of all the disciples. Almost all of them will fall away as Jesus is arrested and tried and crucified. They will be afraid. They will run and they will hide. Their hearts will be so troubled that they cannot even be where Jesus is or where they might be recognized as his followers. But Jesus here gives them the ultimate reason why their hearts should not be troubled. He says, you believe in God. Their hope is in God, as it should be. But he also adds this exhortation, believe also in me. Now there's a preview here of where we're going in our second point, where we will treat this in detail. But true belief in God is belief in Christ. But here Jesus also reveals what is to come, starting in verse 2. In my Father's house are many mansions, it said in the translation I read. Now, mansions is probably not the best translation of the word. The Greek word is monai, and it's a more generic term just for a dwelling place. Many translations will instead translate this as rooms, and that's 
probably a better translation of this word. It's just a place. It's nothing specific about the place. Now, this can be a tough pill to swallow for people like me who grew up singing songs like Mansion Over the Hilltop. It was actually one of the first songs I learned when I was a kid. I was probably three or four years old and learned that song, and my mom would take me to nursing homes, and I'd sing it there, and everybody thought it was cute and such, but... People often like to talk about heaven this way. It's, we're going to get mansions, we're going to get these big estates, and they almost start to talk about the blessings of the new creation like they are an end in themselves. Now, it's not to say that new creation is not going to be glorious, but the real estate is not the point. The important point here is that there is a dwelling place in the eternal dwelling place of God, for his people. That is what Jesus says next. There are these many dwelling places in his father's house. He is going to prepare them for his disciples. Jesus is departing from them into death and later to his ascension. But it's not that he's going to forget about them and never be seen by them again. He is going now, but later their faith will be sight. These dwelling places are more than mere dwelling places. They show Christ's continuing care for his people. If he's going to prepare a place for his people, that would be pointless if he didn't come back for them. There was a news story recently I heard from over in Sioux Falls where some people built a house there. They built a mansion there, a very nice and expensive house, but they didn't quite finish it. Near the end of the project, they ran out of money, and so this house has just been sitting there for years, not quite finished and empty. And the situation has got to the point where the city just wants to tear it down, and it all seems like such a waste. Why build something if it's never going to be occupied? Why build something to sit empty? Now, we are human, and we make mistakes, so... We can, either, we can have plans change, and we can have projects and companies that fail, and so we can end up build, building really big things that end up being useless. But God's plans do not fail. If Christ goes to prepare a place for us, he will most certainly have us occupy it at the time he intends. And Jesus states this explicitly in verse 3. If I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself. Those who belong to Christ will be received into the place he has prepared. But again, it's not about the place itself, the room or the mansion or whatever form it may take. It is about being in the presence of God. It is about again being in the presence of Christ. For Jesus says that where I am, there you may be also. That's where you should want to be. That's what should most excite us about heaven, being in the presence of God and being in the presence of Christ for all eternity. Jesus then tells his disciples in verse 4, And where I go, you know, and the way you know. But this comes as news to these disciples, particularly to Thomas, who questions, Lord, we do not know where you are going, and how can we know the way? But Jesus asserts 
they know. And yet they hear this and they're like, but, but we don't. Where should they go? What must they do to have this eternal life? To have this place in the house of God, in the presence of God? Is not perhaps the greatest questions of human existence how we might know God. How we might go where God has gone. And so many frame it like Thomas does. How might we ascend to where God is? How might we reach Him? Almost every religion besides Christianity is built on this concept of ascent. Things you do to obtain salvation. Ways you by your efforts can obtain some higher life, some higher living. You can climb the ladder and make your way to God. But Christianity is not a religion of ascent where man finds his way to God. Christianity is a religion of descent, and that the way of salvation came down to us. He is the way, and has revealed himself, and that is what he says in verse 6, I am the way. To know Jesus is to know the way to the Father, and this presence with him. Further, Jesus is the truth. He has revealed the truth of God to his disciples. They may not completely understand it yet. They have not yet received the Holy Spirit. They have not yet seen the glorified and resurrected Christ. But that is coming with certainty. And Jesus is the life. He is the hope of eternity. Apart from him, there is only sin and its consequences, death and condemnation. But Jesus is not one way and truth and life among many. He holds that place exclusively. He concludes verse 6 with this, No one comes to the Father but through me. You probably already know what I'm going to say here. No Jesus, no God. No Jesus, no salvation. All those religions of ascent actually go nowhere. There is no salvation by works. There is no salvation in the continued observance of Judaism. There is no salvation in the gods or the works of false religion. But Jesus reveals the Father, and He alone is the way to Him. His disciples know the way because they know Him even if they don't quite know what they know. What Jesus reveals here in darkness will soon be made clear. This leads us to our second point. After Jesus reveals his going, he next speaks of how he reveals God in verses 7 through 11. So Jesus says in verse 7, If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. The disciples to this point, they've struggled to understand what Jesus has said and made clear so often. He is the revelation of the Father. He is the revelation of God. Here we are on the last night before Jesus' death and after everything that has happened, everything that we have witnessed in Jesus' life and ministry in John, where Jesus reveals himself as divine, 
as the Son of God in human flesh, and the disciples still don't get it. Now, there are various reasons for this. They do not yet have the enlightening of the Holy Spirit that will be poured out on them later. Maybe they share in some of the misplaced messianic expectations of the people. They're looking for Jesus to ascend the throne and throw off Roman rule, be that Davidic king that Israel has been waiting for. They want their own place and prominence. We see in other Gospels how the disciples frequently quarrel among themselves as to which of them is the greatest who will occupy the best place alongside Jesus. Had they been listening to Jesus and not so interested in their things and worldly things, they would have understood. But now, Jesus says, they know him and have seen him. He has made it clear. He is the perfect revelation of the Father. He is the way, the truth, and the life. Now you would think that would settle the matter. Jesus has answered the question decisively and definitively. There will be no further questions from the disciples. But then immediately in verse 8, Philip speaks with a request. He says, Lord, show us the Father and it is sufficient for us. Philip errs here on a few points. First, the Father cannot be seen. God is in his nature invisible. He cannot be seen by man. This goes back to something we learned at the very beginning of John in chapter 1. No one has seen God. But Jesus, the Son, the Word, has made God known. Even those in Scripture who see the glory of God obscured and from distance, think of Moses, think of Elijah, think of Isaiah, they are nearly consumed by the glory of God. Moses comes back glowing. Isaiah thinks he is dead. They do not know what they ask when they ask to be shown the Father. But Jesus has already revealed the Father to them if they would just listen and believe. He has revealed the will of God for salvation. Those who have seen him have seen the Father. To know Jesus is to know God in the way which he is to be known. And so Jesus rebukes Philip. Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father in me? Jesus is the Son of God in the flesh, has perfect Trinitarian union with the Father. He knows the Father like no one else ever has or could, and has revealed the truth of the Father to the world. Philip should know this. In fact, what Jesus says next sounds very familiar. It's the sort of thing we have heard from Jesus many times in John. The words that I speak to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does the works. Jesus acts with the authority and the power of the Father. If he did not have the power and authority of the Father, he would not have been able to do any of the things that he had done. The Father and the Son are in perfect unity of will and purpose to carry out the work of redemption anointed and empowered by the Holy Spirit. The Father works through the Son. The Father reveals Himself in power and glory through the Son. 
To know Jesus is to know the Father. And Jesus has been clear on this throughout. But the disciples have been distracted and disoriented while thinking about other things. How often are we distracted and disoriented from the presence and power of God? We're so often caught up in our own stuff, our own desires, our own troubles and difficulties. We can miss that God is with us, that he is working, that he is sovereign over our circumstances and using them all for his glory and our good. These disciples had walked with Jesus for years now, and yet they were still so distracted. They were still missing so much. And so Jesus calls Philip and the others to correction. He says, believe me that I am in the Father and the Father in me, or else believe me for the sake of the works themselves. Essentially, believe because of the words or believe because of the works. But either way, believe in Jesus because he is the way, the truth, and the life exclusively. Jesus has demonstrated the power of the Father. He has revealed him. He has spoken the truth concerning him. To know Jesus is to know the Father. And to know Jesus and know the Father is to do as he has done. And this brings us to our final point. After Jesus reveals his going and God, he reveals gifts in verses 12 through 14. Jesus in verse 12 tells his disciples that the one who believes in him will do the works that he has done. Now, what does this mean? We have seen Jesus miraculously heal, miraculously feed, miraculously raise the dead. Do those who believe in Jesus get to do all of that? Some think yes. This passage fuels a lot of Pentecostal fervor, things like so-called healing and deliverance and word-of-faith type ministries. But even these ministries can't deliver on what they promise. They can't actually display the same kind of power that Jesus did. So what works are going to happen in those who believe? Jesus' disciples will do some miracles. Once the Holy Spirit descends on them at Pentecost, they will, for a time, do miracles of healing and uh, those sorts of miracles of their own. But those works aren't ultimately the point. They are means to an end. The salvation of God's people, the conversion of nations. That is the work that Christ came to do. He came to reveal the truth of God so that people might believe and be saved. He came to do the work of redemption. But after Jesus' departure, the work will continue on. In fact, it will continue on more effectively than it did even when Jesus was around. Jesus has battled and struggled against the resistance in Galilee and more acutely in Judea and Jerusalem. But when he departs into heaven, he will commission his disciples to be his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. They'll go where Jesus never did and proclaim his gospel in places that weren't even known at the time of Jesus. 
That is the greater work that is done after Christ's departure. It's not about miracles and healing and feeding. It's the word of God going forth for the salvation of all those that God has chosen for salvation from out of the nations, even from those who were far off. Jesus' departure is not the end. It's just the beginning of greater things which are still to come. The Holy Spirit will come and empower God's people to be a light to the nations. This separation of nations, the falling away of nations we've been tracing throughout Genesis in the mornings, it will be undone. Those who are far off will be welcomed back in. Jesus will, in our passage next time, teach concerning the coming outpouring of the Holy Spirit and what it will mean for the disciples. That will be the greatest gift that believers receive at Jesus' departure. But then what do we make of verse 13? It seems that Jesus is giving his disciples a blank check. Whatever they ask Jesus, they'll get. As with the other verse, many health and wealth teachers build doctrine on this. They say that Jesus will give people whatever they ask for as long as they have enough faith. But again, as with the previous verse, it needs to be understood in the context of what Jesus is doing and promising for the disciples. Again, they will receive the Holy Spirit. And the greatest works and the greatest blessings will be those that concern the eternal things, the ultimate things, salvation. This isn't about us getting rich, getting better from sickness, getting what we want in life. We may get some of those things, but they are all secondary concerns in God's economy. As the disciples were prone to get distracted when Jesus was with them, we are still prone to being distracted by the cares of this world, away from God's word and work. Now, it's not that our cares and concerns don't matter. We care about them. We pray about them. But we can become so narrowly focused on them that we forget that we live not for ourselves, but we live for Christ. We live not for this world, but for the world to come. So what are our takeaways from this text tonight? Well, first, we should recognize that Jesus Christ is the way and the truth and the life, the only way of access to the Father. No Jesus, no God. No Jesus, no salvation. If you're here tonight trusting in yourself, trusting in your works, trusting in false gods, you will be sorely disappointed in the last day. But Jesus has revealed God to us. He has revealed the only way to the Father, which is through faith in Him. You will not ascend to God on your own. You are a fallen sinner. Your most righteous works are stained with sin and they will never pass God's final judgment. You need the righteousness of Christ. The next day after he delivered these words to his disciples, he suffered and died on that Roman cross. In doing so, he bore the wrath of God that was due and demanded for sin. By faith in Christ, by receiving and resting on him as he is offered in the gospel, you can know the way. 
You can have the confidence that you will live forever as Christ lives forever. And this text is also a commission to mission. Jesus has promised that those who believe in him will do greater things than he did himself. We see that in the very fact that we are here. Jesus never preached his gospel in South Dakota. And yet here we are, having heard it and hearing it again. But there are many out there who have not yet heard who still need to hear. And Christ has given this work to his church to do. And so may we all be faithful to bear the name of Christ where it has not been heard, empowered by the Spirit to do it. May we support and participate in that work where it is happening, for it is a work even greater than Christ's work in his incarnation. May the way, the truth, and the life be made known and believed far and wide. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for this word that you've given us. We thank you for the great salvation that we have in Christ, who has revealed himself as the way and the truth and the life and the only way to you. I pray that all here gathered tonight would believe this gospel, would take it to those who have not heard. I pray that um, all that we do as we go from here this week would bring honor and glory to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this audio presentation of Westminster Orthodox Presbyterian Church in Hamill, South Dakota. For more information, you can visit our website, hamillopc.com. That's H-A-M-I-L-L-O-P-C dot com.